You can have a seat, and if you've got kids to take to the nursery or classroom, you can do that now. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can open to Genesis chapter 47. I'd love for you to hear God's Word today, but also to read God's Word today. And we'll be in Genesis here, chapter 47. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one in front of you. Got one of those white Bibles. If you don't own one, take it with you. It's yours. A couple weeks left in our Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands class. We've been running on Wednesday nights at 6.30. So if you uh, missed a couple, I hope you can make it this Wednesday. And we'll finish that out strong. One of the things we're doing through this class or through this training is we're looking to equip uh, you to be able to counsel other Christians. Uh, counseling isn't something that is just done formally, but is done informally amongst people who know and love God, who have His Spirit and have His Word. And Romans 15 tells us that we are all equipped adequately to instruct one another, uh, literally uh, to counsel one another, to admonish one another. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and you have the Word of God, you are equipped, as equipped as you can be to give counsel to others. As well, though, we want some of you who may have particular giftedness to be trained up to even formally counsel people in our church. That is not um, a particular ministry of pastors, we don't believe. It is a ministry of pastors, but you can all be equipped to do that. And so we want some of you who have giftedness in that area to be trained up so that when somebody is facing um, a pretty serious issue or problem, that you could sit down with them and you could walk with them for six weeks, eight weeks. You could meet with them on a regular basis. You could ask the right questions. You could help them to get to the heart of the matter. And then you could apply God's Word to their life and, and help them help them change. So we're hoping that God would raise up people and equip them to do that. And this training has been, has been step one for that. So we'll offer it again. We'll offer it again if you haven't made it this time. Keep your ears open. But for those of you who've been there, really glad you're there. Genesis chapter 47. We'll read just a small bit of chapter 36. So let me read this in its entirety, our sermon text for the day, and then I'll pray specifically for the preaching of God's Word and we'll, we'll get started so flip back to Genesis chapter 46, and I will be reading from Genesis chapter 46, verse 31, and all the way through chapter 47, verse 31. This is the Word of God. 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and ourselves, our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father, my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land.
Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you would enlighten our minds and our hearts as we study your word this morning and that you would illuminate the truth of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Lord willing, we will finish the book of Genesis or our study of it in early June. And then we'll begin our next sermon series, which we'll be talking about a few aspects of our church life together, our singing, our speaking, our praying. And then we'll be moving on to the New Testament and uh, be preaching through the book of Colossians. Joseph's family has accepted his invitation and here they are in Egypt. It's where we are in the story. The famine would have killed them back home in Canaan. They were out of grain. They were out of food. They were out of drink. They were out of resources. And so when Joseph invites his father and his brothers, hey, come down to Egypt so that I can, I can care for you and I can make provisions for you, they, they of course accepted his invitation because there's a surplus in Egypt, which is thanks to Joseph. So, Jacob has made this 250-mile-ish journey from this homeland, this land that had been promised to him and to his forefathers. He's made that journey now into Egypt. And he made that journey with a lot of trepidation, um, fear, anxiety, worry, especially early on. But he was assured by God personally assured by God that he was headed in the right direction. He was doing the right thing. Nothing is more worrisome than not knowing if you're honoring God and pleasing God with what you're doing. At least that's how it should be. And nothing should unclear your conscience more than that wondering whether or not you are obeying God and pleasing Him. And so... God came to Jacob and said, listen, you're going where you need to go. You're doing what you need to do. 
I know it's difficult. I know it's tough. I know it's painful. But you're doing what I want you to do. And so Jacob appears to be emboldened by that. And we never read of any fear from him. Actually, again, he has just been reunited to his son whom he lost for over 20 years. His favorite son, Joseph. So you can imagine how special that reunion must have been between father and son. As Joseph was sold some well, 20-some years before into slavery. So three parts today. Three parts today if you're taking notes or you'd like to know how we're going to divide up this chapter. The first section will begin in verse 31 of chapter 46 and we'll go through the 12th verse of chapter 47. And here we'll read about Joseph introducing his family to Pharaoh. That's section 1. Joseph introducing his family to Pharaoh. Section 2, chapter 47, verse 13 through 27. Joseph stewards the resources of Egypt. We're going to read about Joseph's stewardship over the resources that he has been given control over in Egypt. And then section 3. Verses 28 through 31, the smallest section, but leading into one of the longest sections in the book of Genesis, the death of Jacob. And this section we'll deal with today will be Joseph at his father's bedside. So three sections, Joseph introducing his family to Pharaoh, Joseph stewarding the resources of Egypt, and then Joseph at his father's deathbed side. So let's look at this first section. And here is Joseph's plan to incorporate his non-Egyptian family into Egypt. How is he going to do that? How is he going to uh, engraft his non-Egyptian family into Egyptian life, Egyptian society. Verse 31 of chapter 46. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So, first, Joseph prepares his brothers to meet Pharaoh. That's the first thing he does. Joseph is priming his brothers for this meeting that they're going to have with Pharaoh. And he tells them something sort of interesting, I think. He says, listen, you're in Egypt now, and shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. 
So I want you to tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds. That doesn't sound like great advice. So in Egypt, he says, they don't like shepherds. They are an abomination to Egyptians. That's a pretty strong word. It's a pretty strong word. Right? You seen that show, Dirty Jobs? We don't know the reason, but for some reason, the Egyptians just detested anybody whose occupation involved caring for livestock. Maybe it was seen as a dirty job. Maybe it was seen as a, a filthy job, a defiling job. And so while it was necessary, somebody had to do it, uh, they didn't want to associate with anyone who would call themselves a shepherd. So Joseph gives his brothers that heads up and then the advice he gives them is, so when you go in to see Pharaoh, I want you to tell him that you are shepherds. So I think this is a case of honesty being the best policy. Okay, just be honest with him. Don't make something up. He's going he's gonna to figure out what you do. He's going to smell you. He's going to know what you do. So don't, don't try to get out of this. Don't try to make it sound like you do something you don't do. Don't be people pleasers here. Okay? Heads up. They normally don't take too kindly to shepherds, but there's no point in trying to fool this man. So impress him. This is the way to impress him. Impress him with your refusal to deny your heritage and tell him what he wants to hear. So don't do that. Don't just tell him what he wants to hear. Don't deny your heritage. I mean, we've been shepherds for generations. Just be proud of that regardless of what he thinks. Go in and, and just deal with him plainly and honestly. So that's the first thing. Joseph prepares or primes his brothers to meet Pharaoh. He's very methodical here. And Joseph is. We've learned this. He's an administratively gifted man. He's not a, a guy who flies by the seat of his, of his pants. He always has a plan. He's not the ready, fire, aim guy. He definitely takes aim. He definitely thinks about what he's going to do. So first, let me get you brothers prepared. Then, verses 1-4 through four of chapter 47. So Joseph went in. And told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So second, Joseph meets with Pharaoh alone. He goes in one-on-one, -on -one, meets with Pharaoh. And then third, Joseph brings before Pharaoh a delegation of his brothers. Does he bring all of his brothers before Pharaoh? He does not bring all of his brothers. He brings how many? He brings five of his brothers, a delegation. So he chooses five brothers to represent the rest of the brothers, probably the top five. I'm sure they didn't just draw straws. 
He's being strategic in this. This brother is definitely going to go before Pharaoh. This brother is definitely not going to go before Pharaoh. This brother will represent us well. This guy's got good manners. This guy's a pig. You're not going before Pharaoh. I don't know what this guy is going to say. He's a loose cannon. Whatever it was that he thought about, he chose five of the brothers. He delegated them to go and to represent the rest. He knew who was likely to make a good impression and who was not. Verses 5 and 6, we read that Pharaoh is going to respond favorably. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So Joseph's plan goes really well. Really well. No problems. Pharaoh responds favorably and says, put them in the best land and put them in charge of my livestock. Couldn't go any better. Put them in the very best land and put them in charge of the livestock. And now, the fourth thing that Joseph does to incorporate his non-Egyptian family into Egypt. Verses 7-12. through Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So first, Joseph prepares his brothers to meet Pharaoh. Second, Joseph meets with Pharaoh alone. Third, Joseph sends a delegation of his brothers. And then finally and fourthly, Joseph brings his aged father in to meet Pharaoh. We're going to come back and examine the words of Jacob here and the words of Jacob at the end of this chapter. But let's move on to the next section. Verses 13 through 27. Here is Joseph. That was Joseph before Pharaoh. And now here is Joseph before Egypt. Before we'll read of Joseph before Jacob. Here's Joseph before Egypt. How will he steward the resources of Egypt? They're in the middle of a a terrible famine. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, herds, and donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, to buy us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. It stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So here Joseph is in charge of all this grain that he has worked hard for seven years to set aside in preparation for the famine that he knew was coming. Nobody else was preparing, but Joseph was preparing. And when the famine struck, the Egyptians and even some from Canaan have come and they've started by giving money in exchange for grain. And then once all the money's gone, he requires their livestock. Once all their livestock is gone, he requires their property. And finally, their servitude in exchange for grain to survive. It might sound a little ruthless. He's like that guy you play in Monopoly, right? It's just ruthless. Just doesn't, just doesn't care. Just doesn't care. We play Monopoly or games like that in our family. And we've got some, you see the different personalities. We've got somebody just very gracious and kind. And actually, my son who's here today, he's always wanting to give his homes and, and give his hotels. And he sees a brother, you know, just he's, his brother's made really poor life decisions. <laughs> and just doesn't, doesn't want to see him, doesn't want to see him drown. And so he says, here, you know, he'll slip it under the table. You know, here's a little. Here's a little greenhouse. And then I've got other boys who are like, no, you know what? You don't work, you don't eat. I got a verse. I'm taking your houses. I'm, I'm just, you know what? You're going bankrupt right now. Just give me everything you have. You better mortgage that because it's, it's mine. I'm taking it. But just, just ruthless, right? Really a tough game to play with your kids, by the way, right? Really tough game because at some point you have to look in your kids' eyes and say, you know what, buddy? It's over. You need to give me everything that you have and go sit on the couch while we continue to play. Or you're welcome to watch. It's rough. It can look like Joseph is that guy, right? 
It's just, just ruthless. Give me your money. Okay, money's gone. Give me your livestock. Livestock's gone. Okay, give me your property. Now the property's gone. What do they have left? All they have left are their bodies. Okay, sell me your bodies as instruments and tools to be used in the land of Egypt to work the land. Servitude. Enslavement. And then what does he do? Then he taxes them. Then he taxes them. How much? 20%. 20%. Everything you have, 20% goes to Pharaoh. Almost as bad as America, right? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Some have argued that Joseph became corrupted by power. And that's what we're reading here, that he has become corrupted and, and it's being demonstrated in how he's handling people. But I don't think that lines up with the text. First of all, it was the people's idea. It was their idea. They're a starving people. There are people who are going to die if something is not done. And they need to give something in order to survive. They need to give something in order to have the resources, which are not endless, in Egypt. And so they make a deal. And at the end of the deal, verse 25, they actually thank, they actually thank Joseph and they praise him and they praise Pharaoh. It was a way for them and their Joseph says they're little ones to survive, to continue to have food. I think Joseph is simply a smart and hard worker. We, we've seen that throughout his entire life. Joseph's life is under a microscope in the book of Genesis. And we know more about Joseph's life almost than we know about anyone else in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. We, do, we know a lot about Joseph's life. And we've seen how he lives and we've seen how he thinks and we've, we've seen his heart. We've seen how he makes decisions. He's a wise man. He's a wise man. Smart. Godly. He's faithful. Diligent. He's a godly politician. He really appears to be a godly politician in the land of Egypt. In fact, F.B. Meyer, a pastor from the 19th century, when thinking of Joseph here, he was reminded of Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, which say, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. He said, F.B. Meyer, that's Joseph. He's not slothful. He's a hard worker. He's fervent in spirit, and he is serving the Lord. F.B. Meyer went on to say this, and I think, it's a, I think it's a good quote, and I think it's good for us in an age of, of, of a lot of um, laziness, a lot of slothfulness. He says, Some men do their life work as if every joint were stiff with rheumatism or as if they were exuding some adhesive mucus making their snail progress as painful as it is slow. You're laughing because you, you know or are this person. Others are sleepwalkers looking for something and forgetting what they seek. Not able to find their tools, always late, taking their passage when the ship has sailed, ensuring their furniture when the house is in flames, locking the door when the horse is gone. Beware of imitating any of these. First, choose a pursuit, however humble, into which you can rightly throw your energy and then put into it all your forces without stint. There are a good many unfaithful servants about in the world. And if you rebuke them, you receive an answer. 
My wages are so poor. My wife takes no interest in me. I am treated as a slave. I shall leave as soon as I can. Stop. Who put you where you are? Had Christ anything to do with it? If not, how came you there without asking His leave? If He had, how dare you leave unless you are sure He calls you away? And as for service, why do you serve? For money? Or thanks? Or habit? No, for Christ. Then do your best for Him. Every room you enter is a room in His temple. Every vessel you touch is as holy as the vessels of the Last Supper. Every act is as closely noticed by Him as the breaking of the alabaster box. On every fragment of your life, you may write, sacred to the memory of Jesus Christ. And now our third section. Verses 28-31. through 31. Here is Joseph before Jacob at his father's bedside. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Typically, the Bible does not devote many words to the death of someone. You've maybe even been offended at times when you're reading the Bible and you read about someone's death and the Bible usually just sort of glazes right over it. Paul says the sting of death has been taken away. The death is not nearly as big a deal to a Christian as it is to a non-Christian. Death is, is not as significant as it once was to us. We were held in slavery, Hebrew says, by our fear of death. We were enslaved by our fear of death. And we have been freed from that slavery. We've been freed from that slavery by Christ. So none of you know when you're going to die. I know we all think we know when we're going to die. I think I know when I'm going to die. I really do. I think about my life and what I'm going to do next year and in 10 years and in 15 years and in 30 years, Lord willing, in 40 years. And I think about what I'm going to be doing and I make plans. And sometimes I forget to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this and I'll do that. But the truth is I could die right here in this pulpit this morning. The truth is I could have some kind of a heart attack or aneurysm or embolism and I could just be done this afternoon. I could have hours left in my life. I could have minutes, moments left in my life. The truth is that none of us know. And if death means that at that moment I'm eternally alienated from God, that's a fearful thing. But if death means that I'm eternally reunited with God, that's a wonderful thing. 
And so the Christian welcomes death. It doesn't mean that you just face death with absolutely no fear. It doesn't mean that you're not still human and there's concern and there's anxiety and there's worry for those loved ones that you would leave behind and what would come of them. But ultimately, ultimately, it's a fearless transition where we go to be with God. But because death is not all that significant for a Christian, the Bible usually does not spend a lot of time belaboring the details when somebody dies in the text. But 75 verses are given to Jacob's death. That is really, contextually, when you look at the Bible, significant. 75 verses verses are given to Jacob's death. This is just the beginning that we're reading today. We begin to read of his death here in chapter 47. He's not going to die until the end of chapter 49. And the first part of chapter 50 deals with his burial. We'll read of three deathbed scenes. One today with Joseph. Then we'll read of the deathbed scene with Joseph and Joseph's sons. And then there will be a third deathbed scene that will be Joseph and Joseph's brothers at his bedside. So today, in in, in these last few verses of chapter 47, we just begin studying how does this great man of God die? How does he die? What's he thinking about? What is he saying? What is he doing? Remember, you can divide the book of Genesis up into ten sections called toldots. That's how Moses divided it up. And each of those sections begins with the phrase, these are the generations of... Or this is the family of. And we're at the end now of the longest toldot, the longest section in Genesis. And it is these are the generations of Jacob. So while Joseph has been the main character for chapters now, really this has all been an account of Jacob's family. And so it's appropriate and expected that this last section ends with the death of Jacob. So, I told you we would do this. Let's look back. And I want to read again and draw out application all the words that Jacob is saying in this chapter. Let's examine carefully because we're going to be examining Jacob for a while. Go back to verse 9. Go back to verse 9. There are some powerful statements and actions that came from Jacob. Let's take them one at a time. The very beginning of verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, and he's answering a question that Pharaoh asked in verse 8. You see that. How many are the days of the years of your life? So Jacob probably looked pretty old. Like, wow, how old is this guy? Barely made it in here. How many are the days of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, here's the first thing he said, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. So he 
he answers Pharaoh's question differently than Pharaoh asked the question. Did you catch that? Because Pharaoh didn't say, how many days have your sojourning been? He said, how many days has your life been? But Jacob does not say the days of the years of my life. He doesn't use the same word. He doesn't say the days of the years of my life are 130 years. He says the days of the years of my sojourning or pilgrimage, some of your Bibles might say. He doesn't say my life has been 130 years. And this is important. It's significant. It's a theme in your Bible. He's going to say it again. He says my pilgrimage has been 130 years. Jacob understands that his life is a, is a pilgrimage. It's a sojourn. It's a, it's a journey. This world is not his home. Is what that means. So when he dies, that means that he's not leaving his home. Some of you, you're afraid of death and when you die, it feels like you're leaving everything. For the Christian, he's gaining everything. Christian, when you die, you're not leaving your home. You're going home. That's not just, that's not just cliche. When Christians speak of the death of a saint, and by saint we just mean one who has been faithful to God. When Christians speak of the death of a saint, they may describe it as this man or this woman going what? Home. So-and-so went home last night. And that's not meant to just be a silly, cliche way of describing what happened so that we can all feel warm and better about what happened. We really mean that. We really mean that. If so-and-so was in Christ, if so-and-so loved Jesus, if so-and-so was a Christian, then when so-and-so's body gave out last night and their heart stopped working and they went brain dead, they went home instantly. They went home. And so that means that however many years they had lived, however many hours or moments they had lived before that moment, that they were simply on a pilgrimage. On a journey. Just sojourning. If you're sojourning, it means that you have no permanent home. And so for the Christian, he is sojourning in this world. This world is not his home. Let me read you some other scriptures. First Corinthians or Chronicles 29:15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Psalm 39:12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Listen to all the words that are used to describe sojourner, stranger, guest, like a shadow, no abiding. Psalm 119, verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. 
my pilgrimage. We are, as Jacob was, pilgrims. Pilgrims. Remember the name of John Bunyan's famous allegory? Pilgrim's progress. If you're a Christian, you're a pilgrim. And if you're a pilgrim, you will progress. You'll move forward. You'll, you'll grow. You'll mature. You'll be sanctified. You were saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. And right now, you're being saved. You're being changed. And then when you die in a moment, you'll be completely changed. See Jesus face to face. But right now, we're on this journey. We're pilgrims. And that has physical implications and that has spiritual implications. I mean, it does have physical implications. I mean, it, physically, we are pilgrims. It means that while we do you know, build homes and rent homes and own homes. And it doesn't mean that you need to go home this afternoon and we're getting out of this house. We're going down to the park. We're done with this brick and mortar and ungodly sheetrock. It's tent now. It's tent. It's good enough for them. It's good enough for you, sweetheart. So let's go. We're packing up. Meet you at Royer Park. You're going to set up a tent. And that's what, it's not what that means. It's not what that means. But it should mean that whatever physical stuff you have, you hold on to it real loosely. You hold on to it real loosely. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy the things that you have. Please don't hear that. You should enjoy the things you have. And if you don't enjoy the things you have, you're not honoring God. You're dishonoring Him. Because He's given you the things that you have. And you should thank Him for Him. And you should enjoy Him. But don't enjoy Him too much. Don't enjoy them too much. Don't enjoy them to the point, you know how you enjoy something too much? You know when you've enjoyed something too much? You no longer want it, you need it. You don't need it. You don't need your money. You don't need your car. You don't need your house. You don't need your Xbox. You don't need any of these things. You may want them. You may desire them. You may love them. You may enjoy them, but you don't need them. You don't need them. We're pilgrims. There should always be, therefore, spiritual movement in our life and never spiritual settling. Never in the life of a Christian. Because we're pilgrims. The pilgrim's progress. Not the pilgrim's stagnation. The pilgrim's progress. We should never be settled spiritually. You ever felt settled spiritually? You ever felt like that? You ever said this or heard someone else say this about their spiritual life? I feel stuck. I just feel like my wheels are spinning. What are they saying? Spiritually, I feel like I'm not moving. I feel like I've settled. We should encourage one another when we feel like that. Well, you should never settle. Don't stop moving spiritually. Now, it could mean that just... The growth in your life is slow and incremental. And that is true at times. And you need brothers and sisters who love you to come alongside you and say, no, it's okay. It's okay. You are growing. You are maturing. But it's a bit slow right now. And I know it's not to the degree that you want it to be. 
And I know you're not accelerating the way you want to accelerate, but be content. Christ is at work. Are you being faithful? Are you loving him? You're honoring him? It's okay. Hang in there. But then others need a kick in the pants, right? Need a kick. Stop settling. Stop settling. What have you accomplished everything in Christ? Are you have you, have you just, just nailed it? Did you just slide into home or something? Why are you walking towards the dugout? This is not over. You're in the field until you're dead. There's no settling. Christian life, we're always moving. Have you run out of motivation, Christian? Are you no longer motivated? Do you not see any more what needs to change in you? Do you not see what you could be in Christ that you are not? There should be plenty of motivation. Oftentimes, when a Christian is settled, they're not reading their Bible. They're not reading their Bible. Maybe they stopped reading their Bible because they were tired of being motivated to move and change and work because it's hard. It's hard work. But the Christian is a pilgrim. And so we're never settling down spiritually. We're always moving spiritually and looking forward to something. Hebrews 11:13 through 16. These all died in faith. Talking about men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, there's another word, exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And this is not it. This is not our homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them, uh, do you know how it finishes? A city. A city. As John Bunyan calls it, the celestial city. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. There's no real rest till we're there. With Christ, as we are now in Christ. Look at the next thing Jacob says. So first, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. Then the second part of verse 9. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Uh-oh. Is this a complaint? Is this a here we go again moment for Jacob. He's been a whiner before. He's been a complainer before. You're going to blow it. Here you are before Pharaoh. So what's the tone that we're going to use when we read this? Are we going to sound like Eeyore when we read this? Few and evil. <laughs> Is that how we should read it? Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. <laughs> so sad. No friends. No love. Just Jesus. <laughs> I don't think that's the tone. I don't think that's the tone. I think this is just the truth. And I think Psalm 90.10 says as much. The years of our life are 70. 
or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So there's the flying away and there's the toil and trouble. That's what Psalm 90 says. There's the flying away, yay, and there's the toil and trouble. What is the toil and trouble? When does, when does toil and trouble happen? Between when, there's a season for it. And the season is between when you're born and when you die. That's the season of toil and trouble. Does that mean that everything's miserable in your life? Just be Christian, just, you're going to be miserable all the time. No, it doesn't mean that everything's always miserable. Does it mean that there will be nothing but toil and hardship in your life? No, it doesn't mean that there will be nothing but toil and hardship in your life. But you can bet on there being toil and hardship in your life. Jacob looks back and says, let me see, how shall I describe this world and my life in it? All my days have been few and evil. Evil and few. Few went by like that. Here he is in his hundreds and he's saying that. Seems like just yesterday I was 17. Went by quickly, like a vapor. And the days have been evil. I've seen a lot of evil. It's why I'm a pilgrim. It's why I've got my eyes set on another city that God is preparing for me because there will be no evil there. And there will be no sin there. There will be no pain there or suffering there or tears there. I'm looking forward to that. But my days here, they've been few and they've been evil. They've been evil. I'm sure he's talking about evil without and evil within. The way he's been sinned against and the way that he has sinned against others. Verse 10. What else does he say? What else does he do? First he says, and they have not attained, talking about the days of his life, to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. So he also saying, they, my, my dad and grandpa, they were also pilgrims. Okay, They were also pilgrims. But here is humility, I think, of Jacob. Humility of Jacob. My dad, my grandpa, they were spiritual giants. They were spiritual giants. And I'm a fraction of the men that they were. Just a fraction of what they were. I don't think he's just talking about the fact that they lived longer than he did. They did. He says, I'm a fraction of the men they were. I'm sure there's some regret in his words there as well. Decisions he made. Words he said. Behavior. Verse 10, what does he do? And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. I think this is very interesting. We see the humility of Jacob. He looks back on his days. He says, I'm a pilgrim. My days were few. My days were, were evil. I'm not half the man that my father was. I'm not half the man that my grandfather was. And yet, his conscience is clear. And he is a confident man, confident in God, because he comes before Pharaoh with great boldness. Because what does he do? He blesses Pharaoh. Which would appear totally backwards. 
totally backwards. Jacob has great confidence, in spite of his past, in spite of sin, forgiven in Christ, cleansed in Christ, loved by God, confident in God, not in the man that he is, but confident that he is there as an ambassador of God in Egypt. And so he confidently comes before the most physically, externally, the most powerful man in the world. He comes before this man and rises up his frail body and puts his hand on Pharaoh's head and blesses him. Evangelizes him. That's confidence. That's boldness. Charles Colson talked about when he was working with Nixon in the White House, he would watch these bold Christians with all of their ideas and all of their words in public, and he would watch them just crumble in the Oval Office. They were so confident out here, but as soon as they just, they just couldn't handle it. They'd come into this Oval Office and they'd sit before the President and they'd just they'd be quiet as lambs. Well, here's Jacob coming before the Pharaoh. And with complete boldness and confidence. Hebrews 7.7 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And who does the blessing here? Jacob. It does not say that Pharaoh blessed Jacob. But Jacob blessed Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, at least externally, is the great one in the room. He is the great one in the room. Pharaoh was great. And he was decorated as if he was great. They considered, you know, that he was the embodiment of a god. The sun god, Ra. That Pharaoh was actually the embodiment of that god. But Jacob clearly was not intimidated by any of this. Not intimidated by wealth. Not intimidated by power. Who are you intimidated by? Should be challenging to us. Who do you want to please? Whose approval do you want? Is it the powerful, the popular, the beautiful, the wealthy, the highly intelligent, the experts? Do you find your confidence diminished before certain people? Do you shut your mouth as if you had nothing to offer when in fact you do have something to offer? Don't you? What does Paul say we have to offer in 2 Corinthians 4? We have what? This treasure in jars of clay. What is this treasure? The glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that has been shown into our hearts. We have the Gospel. Now we should not be presumptuous. We should not be arrogant. But we should be confident. We should be confident. We should know that spiritually speaking, the Christian is always the smartest person in the room. Always. You know what everyone else needs to know. You know Christ. You know His Gospel. And we ought to have the confidence to proclaim it. We ought to have the confidence to share. We ought to have the confidence to declare God's Word and the truth of God's Word with Total boldness. Jacob is an example. 
Christian, you have more to offer the world than the world has to offer you. Don't forget that. You have more to offer the world than the world has to offer you. And then finally, Jacob says this at the end of our chapter. To Joseph, what is this all about? If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. What's the big deal? Why is he so concerned with where he's being buried? Uh, Jacob is not superstitious. He's not superstitious. He doesn't think that by being buried in Egypt that he's going to be separated from his fathers who have died. Oh, God's not going to find my body. <laughs> I'm supposed to be over here in this plot and he's going to show up trumpet it's gonna be embarrassing and i'm not gonna be there because i'm back here in egypt so you need to get my body there because when he resurrect it's just gonna that's not what he's worried about (laughs) that's not what he's worried about he's not superstitious he he knows that when he dies his soul is going to be immediately with god he knows his soul is going to be immediately reunited with his fathers he 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 knows this So I would agree that this is the significance and the meaning of being buried in Egypt. This is what Ligon Duncan says. He wants the symbolism of his burial in the land of Canaan, in the land of his fathers, to stand as a testimony to his descendants that their hope is not in Egypt. Their hope is in the promise of God, and for them that means the land of Canaan. His great concern is that Joseph and his descendants would be focused upon the promise of God given to his grandfather Abraham and that they would never, ever forget it. Jacob here sets an example for us. For those of us who are pilgrims wandering in a strange land, our sight must be on the city with foundations. And our hope must be in the promise of God and nothing else. And if our sights are off and our hope is off, we are just not pilgrims. And we are just not disciples of the same God who is the God of Jacob. May God enable us to be pilgrims despite all the enticements of this world. Set our hope on that place which is to come and to trust in His promises more than all the earthly blessings which we could possibly obtain. I close by reading Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminders, God, of how short and temporal this life is. That we are pilgrims, God. We are sojourners. And each day, the goal of our pilgrimage is to glorify You. Is to honor You. It is not to get what we want. It is not to have what we want. It is not to design and create our kingdom here on earth. It is not to 
obtain what we want to obtain. It's to bring you glory, to bring you honor. So God, make us a people that respond well to the various providences that you bring us, people that would honor you in them, obey you in them, rejoice in them. God, we, I ask that we would all find the strength to endure the toil and the hardships and the trials of this life and that the strength to endure this would come from our understanding of the Gospel. The good news that we are a people who have been rescued and saved. And therefore, we can live this life in a dramatically changed and different way. For Your glory and for Your namesake and not our own. Be blessed, God. Be blessed as we remember the death of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in our place through this supper this morning. We love You and honor You and bring You glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.